Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Chris Woods, the co-founder of airwars.org, a London-based NGO that tracks civilian casualties caused by aerial warfare. Airwars was launched in 2014 with a mandate to monitor and assess civilian harm from air power-dominated international military actions. It seeks transparency and accountability from belligerents and advocates on behalf of affected non-combatants. Airwars is focused on Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Libya, as well as Somalia. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us uh, on. It's appreciated. You co-founded Air Wars. What was the motivation? Yeah, so setting up Air Wars, so my background was an investigative journalist for many years, particularly with the BBC, with Panorama and Newsnight, their big flag, flagship current affair shows, and uh, covering the Middle East uh, frequently. For example, the invasion of Iraq back in 2003, and then repeatedly um, in Iraq uh, uh, over the duration of the occupation. Uh, civilian casualties was always a concern of mine as a journalist and something I felt that um, wasn't as well understood as it could be. And when we set up air wars, there was a particular point where militaries had started to make these fairly outrageous claims that their munitions were now so precise that they were no longer harming civilians. And, And the evidence on the ground just didn't seem to match that. If you recall the NATO uh, campaign in Libya in 2011, NATO asserted at the end of that campaign that it hadn't killed a single civilian. And and, uh, five separate investigations, including by the UN, found otherwise. So uh, the idea was, could we monitor what local communities themselves were reporting? And from that, pull together some provisional understandings of civilian casualties that offered a baseline uh, estimate that was a counter really to those military claims of zero deaths. And and that's really what Air Wars is about. It's about robustly uh, gathering data. We're neutral on the conflicts we cover. Uh, we review that data using a standard methodology. Uh, and then we engage with militaries on behalf of those affected communities saying, look, this is where the communities say you've killed and injured their members. These are the events that we think you should be looking at. Now, you started in 2014. At that point, the uh, Syrian civil war had been raging for three years. Was there a particular incident that said to you, we've got to do something about this? Well, so we we don't currently monitor uh civilian harm from domestic activities in either Iraq or Syria. The, the, the main reason for that is we came into the war, as you say, three years after it had begun uh, for Syria. And our focus has been on foreign powers. Um, more than 20 foreign powers have bombed in Syria uh, since uh, 2011. And we felt there should be accountability for those foreign forces for the airstrikes, the artillery strikes that they conducted. So that's been our focus. So uh, we began monitoring in Syria when the US and its allies began conducting airstrikes and cruise missile strikes back in September 2014. And then as other foreign powers have come in, so for example, Russia, Turkey, uh, Iran, uh, and Israel, we've also covered civilian harm from their activities as well. So we track civilian harm from all foreign powers operating, except when they're 
part of, uh, effectively part of domestic forces. So uh, we don't track Iranian uh, activities in conjunction with Assad government forces. But where Iran conducts unilateral actions, we do actually track that. Now, getting belligerents to provide transparency and accountability, that sounds like a rather daunting task to me. How do you do it and, and how successful have you been? It's a, it's a very mixed result for us. So we, we've had the most success, interestingly, with the, the Americans under both Obama and uh, Trump. And we hope that will continue under Biden. The, the Americans have been relatively accountable for their civilian harm. We significantly disagree with them on the number of civilians killed in the war against so-called Islamic State. But they have admitted more than 1,400 civilian deaths now in that war, which is unprecedented. I mean, historically, the Americans don't admit civilian deaths during the wars they fight. So that's been a big improvement. We've also got them to put out monthly uh, civilian harm reports, to have permanent civilian casualty assessment teams, and also through pressure in America, through the US Congress, uh, there are some pretty onerous reporting mechanisms that the US has to ad adhere to now, reporting to Congress every year on the civilians it kills and injures. So that's been pretty good. We've had some breakthrough with European members of the, the international coalition. Um, the Dutch, the British, for example, have admitted some civilian harm, but it's been a pretty mixed bag. And uh, some countries like France, which was the second most active country in the entire war against ISIS, conducted thousands of air and artillery strikes, has never publicly uh, conceded a single civilian death from its actions, which which really is as bad as Russia. Another of the big belligerents that we monitor, Russia has never admitted a, a, a specific civilian death in more than five years of war in Syria. Um, we believe that many thousands of civilians have in fact been killed by Russian actions, but Russia won't admit to any of those. We don't really have any discourse with Russia, but the door remains open uh, from us. We would welcome dialogue with the Russian military and the Russian government. That has not happened, but it's something we, we still hope may be achievable at some point. Now, when you get a belligerent on side, like the U.S. military, what's in it for them? Why do they, why do they engage with you? I think there are several, several aspects to it. Firstly, it helps them to distinguish themselves from other belligerents. If they show that they are adhering to the laws of war, if they show that they're doing things differently, if they show that they're going all out to help minimize deaths and injuries to civilians that can become part of their war narrative. And it can also help to minimise uh, concerns at home. If you remember during the occupation of Iraq, the estimates of civilians killed in that war were very high. Nobody really knew how many Iraqis had been killed during the occupation. The estimates ranged all the way up to a million. And the uh, American refusal to say how many civilians it had killed and injured contributed to the anger domestically in the US uh, towards that war. So I think it can be effective for militaries. But I think the other really important thing is uh, civilian deaths and injuries, um, while they are likely inevitable in conflicts, we still get to make some choices about how many civilians die. And if we can work with militaries to get those numbers down, 
that that surely is in everybody's interest. And we have found willingness at the Pentagon to engage on that because they, you know, they don't want to be killing civilians. That's that's not their interest. Their focus is killing their enemies. And so if we can get them to improve their understanding of where, when and how civilians are killed, that's in everybody's interest. And, and there have, as I say, there have been some pretty helpful breakthroughs with the Americans on that in recent years. Do you have a, an overall picture of Syria, for example, the extent of civilian casualties? Well, the, 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 the overall casualty estimates for Syria are absolutely horrific, going all the way up to about half a million Syrians killed overall in the fighting by all parties to the fighting. Uh, the estimates range from roughly a third of a million to half a million how many of those were were caused by foreign forces that's that's um, challenging to understand sometimes one of the problems we have understanding civilian deaths from russian strikes is that those russian actions are now so intertwined with regime actions uh, that it's often quite hard for local uh, communities to distinguish whether it was Russia or the Assad government that conducted a specific strike. They're often using the same aircraft, similar tactics, sometimes flying together, Russian and, and regime aircraft together. So it's not necessarily possible to say that Russia or the Assad government was responsible for strike X, which killed 20 civilians. But what we can say is that 20 civilians died in either a Russian or a sad government strike. So it's 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 harder to unpack uh, the Russian strike, but we do believe, based on the public evidence, that uh, many thousands of civilians have died in Russian actions. Russia no longer claims not to have killed any civilians in Syria. They, they abandoned that claim a couple of years ago, but they still won't give an estimate and they still won't admit to civilian harm in specific events. Uh, and there's no real dialogue in the same way that we have with the Americans on particular allegations. And that's a shame. Uh, we would certainly welcome that dialogue with Russia because it's uh, if they don't address how they're killing civilians, uh, just like the Americans, they can't get those numbers down. And of course, the, the narrative about Russia in Syria, the claim about Russia in Syria, is often that it indiscriminately bombs civilian areas, um, targets civilians, and by staying silent on those allegations, Russia simply feeds those, those assertions. I want to ask you about how you acquire your data and how can you be sure that it is accurate? Can you just drill down a little bit for us on that process? Yeah. So ours, we're very careful to say ours is just one approach. Ours is just one methodology. There are, there are many other ways that one can try and estimate civilian deaths. And our focus is also exclusively on civilians killed by air and artillery, uh, what we call wide area effect uh, weapons. Uh, so we're not looking at civilians killed on the ground. We're not looking at IEDs uh, and so on. So there are many other deaths happening in Syria that, that are outside our own area. The way we gather information, we have a team of professional Iraqis and Syrians who've been working with us for many years now, who every single day, they gather all available. So, so they work at what we call a hyper-local level. They're monitoring those communities on the front lines of the fighting on any particular day. 
and capturing what those local communities themselves are reporting, either in news or increasingly these days in social media. So what we find is communities report a great deal, particularly in Syria, about what's happening to them, whether that's on WhatsApp or YouTube or Instagram or, or Facebook. There's a great deal of information being put into the public domain by communities about the attacks that are taking place on them, uh, often including the names of victims, uh, photographs, images, videos of the, the, the attacks and the aftermath of the attacks and so on. And all of that information we monitor, uh, we archive and preserve, and then we include on our public website in an assessment of that event. So once we've gathered all of those sources, and on, on a major event, we can have more than 100 individual sources, uh, primarily from that very local level, then we'll, we'll write an assessment based on all of those sources and make a provisional review of civilian harm and, and, and which belligerent might have been responsible. So Air Wars data, which is quoted a lot these days by NGOs and even governments, is built from the ground up from the lived experiences of the communities on the front line of the fighting. So they, they're not sort of estimates, big number estimates. They're built from case by case by case by Iraqis and Syrians gathering that critical information from communities under attack. So it's a slightly different approach to other NGOs. I guess the other difference is every single civilian death and injury to us has equal value. We believe that all civilian casualties should be recorded and militaries should understand where, when and how they're killing civilians in every circumstance, not just the catastrophic events where 30, 40, 50 civilians are killed, but the smaller events as well, where one, two, three civilians are killed, which actually probably form the majority of civilian deaths in Syria and Iraq. Those smaller events, but cumulatively over the years, they've led to enormous casualty numbers. Now, in, in, in terms of claims, uh, I do recall the uh, MOD in the UK making some pretty extravagant claims about the lack of civilian casualties. I'm just wondering how cooperative the Ministry of Defence has been with air wars in terms of trying to track civilian casualties that may have been caused by uh, British uh, strikes. That's a great question. I mean, the British... We do actually rate the British quite well for transparency. They tell us a lot about their strikes. It's relatively easy to cross-reference that information with reports of civilian casualties in the area and so on. Uh, but when it comes to accountability, the British are terrible. They've conducted more than 2,000 airstrikes across Iraq and Syria, many of them in densely populated cities using large munitions that inevitably, in our view, cause civilian harm. Uh, but the British have admitted to just one civilian killed in rural Syria in more than five years of war. And we think that's absurd. And many others think that's absurd as well, including many former British defence officials who've raised concerns about this. We've argued uh, in front of uh, Parliament here in the UK, in front of the Defence Select Committee, that we think there are systemic problems at, at the uh, British Ministry of Defence that they're not capable of understanding how, when and where they kill civilians in their airstrikes. And they've shown no real willingness uh, to understand that either. 
Now, the British comeback on that is usually, well, we have great rules in place that ensure uh, we don't harm civilians. And we've likened that to um, a building construction site with one of those big notices up at the entrance saying, you know, we haven't killed a worker in, in, in three years. And then you say to the site manager, well, how do you know that? Uh, and the, the manager says, well, we've got great policies. We don't measure, we, we don't count the number of de- dead on the site, but we've got some great policies. Unless you can accurately count and understand how you're harming civilians, it doesn't matter how effective you think your policies are if they're not actually trustworthy in terms of understanding civilian harm. And for comparison, the Americans have, have publicly admitted to killing roughly one civilian for every 40 of their airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. The British have admitted to one death for 2,000 airstrikes. So that's the gulf between the, the British and the Americans these days when it comes to accountability for civilian harm. Now, one of the claims that the Saudis have made repeatedly in the Yemen war, where the civilian casualties have been, again, horrific, is that they do not deliberately target civilian infrastructure, weddings, funerals, things like that. They say these are regrettable errors when they do acknowledge them and that civilians never deliberately targeted. I mean, we don't monitor the Saudi-led campaign in Yemen, but I I can certainly talk to that. We did monitor Saudi activities in Syria in the early parts of the war against ISIS. We often hear military saying they, they adhere to international law. They don't deliberately target civilians, which, of course, is a war crime. If, however, a belligerent like the the Saudis in in partnership with the the Emiratis in in Yemen, consistently target civilian neighbourhoods, consistently bomb marketplaces, consistently bomb locations that should be on no-strike lists, medical facilities, mosques, uh, and so on, then one has to question whether uh, they are actually adhering to international law and are not deliberately targeting uh those civilian neighborhoods or are just uh being so lackluster in their efforts to minimize civilian harm that the consequences uh are terrible for civilians anyway but then there's another side to this problem if you look at the 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 americans and their allies bombing in the cities of mosul and raqqa for example in 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 iraq and syria in those two city campaigns, the, the Americans and their allies argued, look, we're adhering to international law, we're using precision missiles, so therefore we can't be killing a lot of civilians. The problem is, when you're bombing densely built up areas, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, you will kill civilians, no matter how much care you take, no matter how much you try and limit the harm you will kill civilians in significant numbers. And indeed, we just put out a big report on this with the Dutch organisation PAX, looking at exactly this issue and this challenge. And there's a growing uh, campaign by nations, led by Ireland and several other South American uh, and European states, to really look at whether we should be limiting the use of explosive weapons in urban fighting because the consequences of civilians are so disastrous. So uh, even if the the Saudis are adhering to international law and not targeting civilians, every time they go and bomb Sana'a, they're they're putting at risk significant numbers of civilians. And that's the problem. 
Yeah, and I'm wondering too, going back to Russia, have you been able to establish that the Russians have been deliberately targeting civilian facilities and civilians? In Russia's case, I think there's strong circumstantial evidence to say that Russia has been deliberately targeting civilian infrastructure. Um, as far as we can tell, the, the, the Russians and the International Coalition have conducted roughly the same number of strikes uh, in their respective wars. I can only recall a couple of occasions where the coalition has bombed, for example, a marketplace. If we look at uh, Russian strikes in Syria, we have dozens and dozens of cases where Russia, uh, Russian aircraft have bombed uh, civilian spaces, including marketplaces, often with catastrophic uh, consequences for, for civilians on the ground. And I, I think when you have so many cases, when it happens so routinely, when, when hospitals that are supposed to have been on no strike list are so frequently bombed, one has to assume that Russia is deliberately targeting civilian infrastructure and civilian populations as part of its effort to drive those populations from those areas. So I think the evidence, the cumulative evidence over many, many years is there are simply too many of these incidents, too frequently in too many locations, for us to not make some assumptions about Russia's tactics. I want to ask you about drones, uh, lethal drones, and the impact they're having on civilians in the various theaters of war that are raging in the region. Armed drone use is definitely uh, a, a, an issue for us in the many of the conflicts we cover. Uh, it's the primary source of civilian deaths now. So, for example, the U.S. campaign in Somalia, the Emirati and Turkish campaigns in Libya, these rely almost exclusively on armed drones now. And that's where most civilians are, are being killed in those strikes. We're also seeing, and, and this is a recent phenomenon, non-state actors, militant groups, um, uh, Hezbollah, Islamic State, uh, Al-Qaeda in, in Syria, themselves weaponizing smaller drones and them playing a critical role on the battlefield. So it's something that we monitor as part of our broader work. It's certainly a concern, that proliferation. And um, as, as we've seen in uh, Libya and in Somalia, that the intervention of armed drones can be very challenging. But it's, it's not insurmountable. I think, uh, you know, these, they've been around as weapons for 20 years now. Uh, the first armed drone strike was very early in, in 2001. Uh, and, and so we're just coming up to the 20th anniversary of the first use of an armed drone. So they're, they're a relatively mature technology now. And I think for us, it's simply an, just one weapons platform among many that we track. Yeah, but increasingly a weapon of choice because, as you say, for non-state actors, I suppose in particular because it's an inexpensive weapon, the argument that the uh, the manufacturers make is that, uh, and it's an appealing one, I suppose, that these can be very targeted hits. So, for example, if you want to take out a particular terrorist leader, you can target right on that uh, chap's car and he's killed and there's no civilian casualties. That's how it's pitched by the manufacturers. There is some truth to that. So if you think about the, the assassination of General Soleimani at the beginning of this year in Iraq, 
That was almost certainly by a US drone using a small munition. Uh, the general was killed along with an Iraqi uh, general with the PMU. Uh, several other military folk and, and uh, a couple of civilians were harmed in that as well. But it was a it was a precise strike. Of course, it had devastating implications in international law. But but drones do, in theory, give the potential to limit civilian harm. But then you can also have drones carrying out really terrible strikes. So uh, there was an, an airstrike on a Libyan military cadet school, uh, for example, a group of young men who were parading unarmed in a, in a GNA school for a military academy and uh, what we believe was a, an Emirati drone conducted a precision strike and, and killed most of those uh, young people. So drones uh, can be used in a very precise way, but they can also very precisely do terrible things as well. Finally, Chris, do you believe you're having impact? I mean, you look at the situation in Syria, Yemen, Libya. Do you ever find it tough going to work? Do you, uh, do you ever lose hope? I think, I think we're always concerned for the welfare of our team. Many of our team are themselves from the conflict countries that we cover. You know, several of our team members are refugees from the countries that we monitor. So there's always a personal challenge. But I think one of the things that keeps the Air Wars team going is the sense that in a small way, in a little way, maybe we're changing things for the better. And if nothing else, we are bearing witness, we are gathering evidence, we're preserving information that maybe at a future point may prove useful. You know, we probably got too used to wars that go on forever and don't end. But there are some hopeful signs. Uh, in Libya in particular at the moment, a ceasefire effectively came into force in June. Uh, in October, that was reinforced with the support of the United Nations and, a, and, a, and a, a more formal ceasefire was signed in Geneva. And really, we haven't seen any violence in Libya since the summer. That's a big achievement. And we keep our fingers crossed that that will give the breathing space for Libyans to come together after a decade of fighting and hopefully build for a more peaceful and reconciled future. So we are hopeful. We're always hopeful at Air Wars, even as we cover these terrible wars that, that do sometimes seem to go on forever. Mm. And as you say, accountability, that's really important. And the record, those things are important. Yeah, absolutely. It's written into our articles as a not-for-profit that we will preserve these materials relating to the conflicts we cover and ensure that they are returned to the peoples of those conflict countries at the end of those conflicts for use in restitution and reconciliation work. Because one of the one of the sad truths about conflicts is so much information about war is in the digital sphere now, and it turns out that's an incredibly vulnerable space. So records disappear very quickly. You know, Twitter accounts are shut down. YouTube channels are banned. Towns are overrun. Uh, websites are closed. So by preserving and, and capturing this information, uh, we ensure that there is a permanent record of these deaths. And, uh, you know, to, to put a sobering figure on this, since Air Wars began in 2014, we've tracked more than 55 thousand reported civilian deaths 
across the conflict countries that we monitor. This is a terrible, terrible number. And every one of those reported deaths is, is of course, an individual uh, from a family, from a village, from a, from a region in the country. And so that some kind of, of memorialising by us and other organisations like Violation Documentation Centre, Iraq Body Count, uh, Raqqa is being slaughtered silently and so on, is really important. Indeed it is. Chris, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Air Wars co-founder Chris Woods. To find out more about the extraordinary work Chris and his colleagues are doing, go to airwars.org. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on arabdigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources. Thank you.